invite you guys to take your Bibles, turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. The gospel of Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 31 to 46. Ask to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. This is God's holy word for us, his people. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, we ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit from heaven to do what only he can do, to take the reading of this word and especially now the preaching of this word, to lay it open and to bless with power the truth of Scripture, to write this truth upon our hearts, to stamp our lives with this truth, to teach us what you have for us to believe today and to show us what you want us to go from here and do. We ask these things for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
It is hard to believe, but today is the first Sunday of Advent. We're already here, and December's just around the corner. Advent means arrival. It refers to the arrival of Jesus, the coming of Christ. Advent is the season in the church's liturgical life when we look back on the first coming of Christ, where we walk with the saints of old as they waited for the first advent of the Messiah, looking and longing and praying with great anticipation. And as we look back and remember when Jesus arrived in Bethlehem's manger, we are reminded that we too are waiting. We too are waiting for Christ to come a second time, a second advent. We too must be looking and longing and praying for that second advent. It's not something we do very often. Pray for the second coming. wonder how many times our prayers include, and Jesus, come on back. Come on back today. Interrupt my plans. <laughs> Scrap my agenda. Just go ahead, part the skies. Come on down. And that would be better than anything else. To have you come today. We pray for all sorts of things. Maybe we think because this is already fixed, we know it's going to happen. We don't need to pray for it. But the reason Jesus came the first time isn't simply because God promised it. He also came in answer to people's prayers. God works through us. He uses means to accomplish his predetermined ends. And if God wants something to happen, he often doesn't just make it happen and leave us out of the equation, often he stirs up some of his saints to pray for that thing so that he gets the glory for answering their prayer. How often do we pray for the new advent, the second coming? This season is meant to remind us to do that, to take some time to remember how the saints of old were waiting and looking and longing and praying, to stir us up, to continue to do the same. And we do it every year until Christ comes. That's what Advent is all about. The return of Jesus is our great hope. The return of Jesus is the great anticipation of our faith. The return of Jesus is the grounds of our everlasting joy. And this morning as we enter the Advent season and we remember our time of waiting... I want us to turn our eyes today upon that future day and contemplate what it is we're waiting for. Jesus himself tells us in our passage today, Matthew 25, he tells us three things that will happen in the second advent. Three things he is going to do when he comes in his glory. First, he will sit on his throne. 
Second, he will separate the nations. And third, he will sentence for eternity. Three things he's going to do. He's going to sit. He's going to separate. And he's going to sentence. Let's look at these one at a time. This passage contains the famous parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, usually a shepherd is the one who does, who does this, who deals with sheep and goats. Look at verse 32. It says that he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So this is something that a shepherd is supposed to be doing, separating sheep and goats. But in the Old Testament, the figure of a shepherd is used as a metaphor for a king. And the reason is because of King David, who was a shepherd. And God called him to no longer shepherd animals out in the field, but to go to Jerusalem to sit upon a throne and to shepherd the people of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, the people tell David, they remind him of what the Lord had said to David. And they say, the Lord said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over them. The shepherd is the king. Or in Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, Matthew quotes a prophecy from Micah 5 2, which says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Matthew 25 is about Jesus as the great shepherd king. And Jesus says that he is coming to sit upon a throne. Now, look at verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The shepherd king is coming to sit Upon a throne. Now, there's two things Jesus says are glorious in this passage. He says, when he comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. So we have two things in verse 31. A glorious coming and a glorious throne. So let's ask these two questions about point one here. What makes his coming glorious? What makes the coming of Christ glorious? Well, notice this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. He's referring to His personal possession. His glory. And this isn't the only time in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus mentions coming in glory. Earlier in Matthew sixteen twenty-seven, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory, not of himself, but of his Father. So Jesus says, 
His glory is the glory of His Father. Or His Father's glory is His glory. And we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that there are two different glories. That God the Father has a glory, and then Jesus the Son has a different, separate, other glory. And we know that's not the case because Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, as he's speaking to his father on the eve of his crucifixion, he says in John 17, 4 and 5, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, in God, there aren't three glories, three powers. There are three persons who share one divine glory. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have one infinite, eternal, immortal, everlasting glory. And when Jesus comes, the reason His coming will be glorious is because He's coming with divine glory. Imagine that scene in the Gospel of Matthew on the Mount of Transfiguration when for just a second the human flesh of Jesus sort of becomes transparent and it lets shine through that immortal, eternal light of eternity. And it just, he's transfigured, he's brighter than the sun and the light blinds the disciples. Imagine that happening, but not just on one little corner of a mountain in Jerusalem, but happening in the whole earth. That when He comes, He will light up the world with the glory of God. He's coming to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, where the whole earth becomes the Mount of Transfiguration and all see His glory. He is coming with heavenly, divine glory and He will fill the earth with the very glory of God. Oh, what a marvelous coming this is going to be. The breathtaking beauty and majesty of the eternal Son of God finally revealed to our eyes in a way that's unspeakably Wonderful. His coming is glorious because He's coming with divine glory. But there's another reason that it's going to be a glorious coming. Look again at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Jesus is not coming back by Himself. He does not return alone. Jesus is coming marching Riding at the head of heaven's armies. The angelic hosts and hordes of celestial power and glory are coming with him. The mightiest beings of God's heaven attend this shepherd king. And these angels come to do the work of cleaning up the mess that sin and Satan have done with God's good creation. Where God pronounces six days straight, it is good, it is good, it is very good. We have made it bad, bad, very bad. But God does not abandon His creation and He does not abandon His people. But He will come again when Jesus returns with the 
hosts of heaven, and he will clean house. Jesus will come as a mighty warrior, as a conquering emperor. Don't just imagine some great Roman general like Caesar or Pompey who's walking in. Alexander the Great, a great Greek general. These mighty generals of the past, these epic hero warriors who march into a city with their great stallions and their big armies and their untouchable And people are bowing and fawning and worshiping them as gods on earth. And all they're doing is marching through the gates of a city. Jesus doesn't just come back to sit on a throne in a city. He's coming back invading earth itself. Where he does not just take a city here and there or a nation here or there. But he comes back to sit upon the throne of all creation. This is why his coming is glorious. Second, what about that throne? What's glorious about the throne? Well, he gives us the clue again in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a direct allusion to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the great prophecy of the Son of Man. Where Daniel says this, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So this is, this is coming up to God the Father. This son of man is coming before the holy God of heaven, the ancient of days, the eternal one, we might say. And he's presented before the throne. Verse 14, and to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve or worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom One that shall not be destroyed. This Jesus is the great son of man. Who comes to receive the throne of all nations. All kingdoms. All peoples. All lands. The whole of creation belongs to him. His throne is glorious because it's higher than every other imaginable throne that you could even think of. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. And that was written 2,000 years ago. Which means, don't make the mistake of thinking that, oh, Jesus is going to be king one day. Out there in the future sometime. And now he's just sort of up in heaven waiting to become king. No, no, no. Jesus is king right now. He's king of every political institution from local brandywine government all the way up to the top. Presidents and parliaments and congresses and courts and princes and officials and powers and principalities. He's king of all of it. Every bit of it. And he's king now. A few, um, a couple of months ago in one of the newsletter articles, the pastor's pen articles I wrote, I mentioned this point. I said, 
America technically is a constitutional monarchy. We have a constitution, but above our constitution is a king, a lord, and his name's Jesus. Whether we like it or not, whether we recognize him or not, whether our politics operates as though that's true, Jesus has a crown and a throne, and he, he's wearing that crown, and he's sitting on the throne now. He's the ruler of kings on earth now. Revelation goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Or as we heard Pastor Mike last week preach from Revelation nineteen sixteen, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. That's an emperor. A king is over his kingdom. An emperor is a king over all the other kings. A lord who's over all the other lords. That's Jesus now. So what's the difference between now and then? His throne will be glorious. What's the difference between now and then? It's this. Jesus is already enthroned. Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Before he even ascended back to heaven. What's the difference? The difference is, right now, that throne is at the right hand of God. Right now, he's reigning and ruling enthroned in heaven at God's right hand. But when he comes again, the right hand of God is going to be right here. That throne is going to be set up right here on earth, visibly in front of you. He will rule and reign here. Where earth and heaven will finally be fully reconciled. So that earth will be heaven and heaven will be earth. In a new heavens, a new earth, a new creation. Where Jesus is king forever and ever and ever. And he is right here in our midst. Jesus is king now, but his throne is in heaven. When he comes, his throne, his glorious throne, will be right here in our midst. And he shall reign forever and ever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. When Jesus comes, the first thing he's going to do is he is going to sit down on his throne. And that presume, that assumes... That all the other nations and all their resistance to his throne have been put down as well. He's coming to sit down. He's not coming to launch an ongoing 20 year campaign to try and. No, no, no. He comes and he sits because it's over. It's over. A glorious coming of a glorious king to sit on a glorious throne. That's the first thing Jesus will do. Second thing he's going to do. He is going to separate the nations. When Jesus arrives and establishes his throne, once he's seated, he will gather all the nations and divide all the people in those nations into two groups. Look at verses 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people one from another 
as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Notice in this passage, in these couple verses here, Jesus is the shepherd king, and the shepherd king has two flocks. He has a flock of sheep, and he has a flock of goats. And right now, they're all mixed up. That's why he has to separate them out. Sheep and goats, all mixed up, all together. Two flocks mingled into one big flock. There is only one king, and there is only one empire. But this one empire has two kingdoms. One shepherd, two flocks. One king, two kingdoms. Inside of one big empire. This kingdom is a right-hand kingdom, sheep on the right hand, and a left-hand kingdom, goats on the left hand. The kingdom on the right hand, the sheep, are those who belong to the spiritual, invisible reign of Jesus as Christians. The kingdom on the left hand, the goats, are those who belong to the spiritual reign of darkness under the evil one. So you have this one big field, sheep and goats all mixed together. Some of them belong to Jesus. And some of them don't. The sheep do, in terms of being believers, Christians, people who were saved. Those are the sheep. And the others are still under this one shepherd. And yet, they're not sheep, they're goats. They're not believers. So we have one world. One world. And there are believers and unbelievers all mixed up together. And externally, it looks like we're all... We can see believers, unbelievers gathered together in different places. We're in society together. We're in government together. We're in the church together. Not every congregation is only believers, right? So we're all mixed up. The people who don't belong to Jesus, the people who do belong to Jesus. And yet he's king over all of it because he's king of the whole earth. But believers and unbelievers are all mixed up together. Both flocks are tangled like a knot together in this world and in the church. And yet Jesus rules them both. He owns both flocks. And when he comes, he's going to untangle the knot. He will sort out the nations and divide the two kingdoms visibly. See, right now, who's a believer and who's not? It's, it's, sometimes you can tell by your fruit you will know them, Jesus says. And yet we can't really see each other's hearts. And so sometimes it's hard to tell Who's a true believer and who's not? And we're all together in this world. We all have to live together, get along together in society and in the church. But who's a true believer and who's not? Sometimes, most of the time, we probably don't know. But when Jesus comes, he's going to make those invisible realities visible. Because he's going to separate them finally. He's going to untangle the knot. And the two kingdoms will finally be separated. When he comes, he'll sort out the nations. Now, he, he, he clarifies this, if that sounds a bit 
abstract. He clarifies this with another parable earlier in Matthew. So go with me to Matthew 13 and listen to this parable of Jesus. Matthew 13, and we'll start in verse uh, 24. I'll read the parable, and then I'll read Jesus' explanation of the parable. Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven, singular, one kingdom, the singular kingdom of heaven, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does, does it have weeds? Where did these weeds come from? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. So in... In the Middle East, in this area, apparently the wheat he has in mind and the weeds he has in mind look very similar to each other. They look really similar to each other. And so you might make a mistake and think, oh, I'm pulling up a weed. No, that was wheat. And so he said, no, 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 just wait. Right now, as they're starting to sprout and grow, they look, they kind of look the same. So no, we don't want to pull them up now. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now the disciples, I think that's kind of clear, kind of what he's talking about. But the disciples are like, we don't get it. Most of us are fishermen. We don't farm What are you talking about? So he says, okay, are you so thick? I will explain to you the parable. And so he does explain the parable. Skip ahead to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's who's doing the separating here in chapter 25. It's the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The whole world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. True believers. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Okay? Sheep and goats. Wheat and tares. That's what we're talking about here. Wheat and weeds. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see the point. Two flocks under one shepherd, they need to be untangled and separated. And when he comes again, he's going going to divide. He's going to uproot the weeds, bundle them, get rid of them, and the wheat goes into the barn. 
These angels he comes back with, they're the reapers. They're the ones who are going to go pluck up the weeds, bundle them, pull up the wheat, put them in the barn. Or they're the ones who are going to go around, sheep or goat, sheep or goat, over here, over there. And finally, Jesus will sort out who is with him and who is against him. But he rules over both kingdoms. It's not like the devil's got his kingdom and it's all out of control and chaos and Jesus is like, oh no. No, no, no. He sits upon his throne. He is sovereign over your enemy, Christian. And though we can't see into the hearts of one another, he certainly can. And when he comes, he is going to separate the one from the other. And this happens in the world, but this is going to happen in the church too. He's going to look at the visible church, all the congregations on the planet, and he's going to go through and say, all right, all the ones who claim to be mine, you have the real thing and you're just playing. You're a true believer and you're not. And he's going to go through not just the world and the neighborhoods you live in and governments and societies. and No, no, no. He'll do that too. He's going to go to every congregation and he's going to separate true Christians from false. And then we will know. Who's who? He's coming to sit upon a throne. He's coming to separate the nations. And then finally, he is coming to sentence for eternity. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, he then sentences each person with a final verdict, an eternal Judgment, And you can tell it's not just sentencing whole nations, it's sentencing individuals because of the way he says it in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, all the peoples, all the people groups, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So everyone's gathered, they're then divided up into their two groups, right hand and left hand, sheep and and goats, wheat and weeds, and a final verdict is going to be rendered on their eternal destiny. That's what I mean by he will sentence for eternity. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead. He's coming to decide eternal destinies. And there is no court of appeals. There's no supreme court that can say that's not constitutional. He is king and his word is law. And he will decide forever. He who is perfect justice, perfect righteousness, will give the pronouncement. A final verdict when he comes. Now again, there are two questions here. The first is, what's the basis of the final judgment? What's the basis upon which he'll make this verdict? Good judges look at evidence. And the good judge of all the earth looks at the evidence of righteousness. That's at the very end. He says the righteous will go into eternal life. Who, he, he's looking for evidence of who the righteous are. And he gives a list of things people do for each other. Visiting the sick and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. In verses 35 and following over to what verse 40 he lists all these things. You, naked and clothed. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Hungry, you gave me food. I was in prison. You came to visit me. You welcomed me. 
And so he's looking to see who are the people who are acting like Christians. Because he says not, did you do this to one another? He says, did you do this to me? When, when a Christian was in prison and you went and visited that Christian, you were visiting me, Jesus, the Son of Man, the judge on the throne. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you were doing that to me. And just as a side note here, Christian, this should give us great comfort in the midst of our afflictions. Those of us who, are, who go hungry and go thirsty and naked and are imprisoned and are filled with afflictions in this life. Fill in the blank with your particular circumstance. There is a solidarity between you and Jesus. He identifies so closely with his people that when you serve someone who's afflicted, you're, you're actually doing it to Jesus. And likewise, when they come and serve you, they're actually doing it to Jesus because Jesus is in you. You are united to him. You are together. You're one spiritual flesh, as it were. Bone of his bone. Flesh of his flesh. You and Jesus knit together down on the inside. You are united in a way that marriage can only dimly picture. You are wedded to your Savior and He is with you in the midst of your struggles and your afflictions. And He's looking here not for evidence of who's going to earn eternal life. Let's see, who's done, who's been compassionate enough to earn heaven? That's not what's happening. He's looking for evidence that you're acting like you belong to Him. He's looking for proof that you really are one of the least of these, his brothers. Jesus says this in other places. For example, in Matthew 12, 49 and 50, Jesus' mother and his sisters and his brothers, they come, look, Jesus is teaching, and they're on the outside saying, can someone send a message to, to our son? We'd like to have a word with him. And someone comes along, Jesus is teaching, they interrupt him and say, you know, your mom and dad and everybody, not dad, but your mom and your brothers, they're all outside and they want to see you. And Jesus, in Matthew 12, he stretches out his hand towards his disciples, just like this. He stretches out his hand and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So he's looking for evidence of who's his family. Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of the Father. And what does the will of the Father look like? It looks like I was in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you gave me some clothes. I was so hungry and you gave me a meal. That's what he's looking for. Who is doing the will of the Father? Who is giving evidence that they belong to me? Who is showing the proof that they belong to me, that they are righteous, that they are among the sheep? And that's going to be the difference. Those who do belong to Jesus and serve Him as His brothers, and then those who don't. Those who do not. That's the difference. So what's the basis of the judgment? Evidence that you belong to Jesus. Second question, what is the verdict? What's the final verdict that he's going to give on that last day? Well, to the wicked, they are sentenced for eternity to eternal, everlasting death. Verse 41, 
Then he will say to those on the left, to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For you have given evidence of whose side you're on. Hell was made for the devil and his angels and anyone who plays for his team. Heaven was not made for the devil or his angels, nor for anyone who takes his side. And so, it says in verse 46, these, these goats, will go away into eternal punishment. Separation from God, but not separation from Him completely, as though they're all alone and God's not there anymore. No, 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 no. They're separated for the first time in their lives from the mercy of God. The most hard-hearted, wicked, evil sinner you can think of that's ever lived has never lived a day in this world utterly destitute of even the thinnest mercy of God. The teensiest little bit of common grace is still available to even the most God-hating sinner on earth. They've never known a day when there wasn't common grace in their life or an opportunity to believe the gospel and have all of that wickedness wiped away. But once you're sentenced for eternity, you are never going to know the mercy of God ever again. You're separated from His kindness and His grace and His patience and everything good and you know nothing but His justice and fairness, His wrath and condemnation. That is what you deserve. And that's what makes this eternal punishment. That's what makes this an eternal fire. Forget physical flames. We're talking about a pointer to something that's so gruesome and horrifying that burning in fire is about as gruesome as the Bible can get to think about it. It's beyond that. It's a metaphor not for something less, but for something even worse. The fires of the eternal wrath of God. Jesus is the one who pronounces these final judgments. This was not prepared for human beings. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But where else are you going to put people who want to be where the devil is? Who want to be on his side? You let them be together. Forever. Under the judgment of God. But Christian, that's not your fate. That is not your eternal destiny. Let us end on this high note. The righteous are rewarded with eternal life. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, to his people, to the sheep, to Christians, to those who are born again, bought with the blood of Christ. He will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. The kingdom that's ready for you. From the foundation of the world. Christian, God has a heaven prepared for you. And it's been ready for you since before the foundation of the world. God in His electing, predestining, mercy and unfathomable kindness to you. He has set His love and affection upon you from eternity. And He cannot 
let you go. You cannot be separated, as Romans 8 says. Nothing in all creation could ever pull you apart. And that word for separate there in Romans 8, it's the same idea of what's happening to the sheep and the goats. They're being divided. Nothing can divide you from Christ or the love of God. He has set an eternal love upon you. And verse 46 says, Although the goats go away into eternal punishment, the righteous go into eternal life. Or as uh, at the end of that parable, we looked at earlier, Matthew 13, it says that the, the weeds, these goats, they go away into a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But verse 43, Matthew 13, 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let him who has an ear to hear, listen. Jesus is coming again. We light the Advent candles to remind us that we are waiting for this to happen. That we are to be praying for these things to happen. And that we have a job to do. And that's to rescue through the power of the gospel as many people from the flames as God gives us opportunity to do. To preach the gospel to every creature. To take it to every nation. So that all God's elect may hear and be saved. And in the meantime, we are to get busy serving one another. Because when you do something, even for the least of these who belong to Jesus, you're doing it to Him. And He marks it. And He remembers it. And one day... Christian, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What a glorious day that's going to be when you and I will see our Savior face to face. I'll close with this from Paul. 2 Thessalonians, he sums up this whole passage that we've seen beautifully. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says this. It says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Christian, open your eyes. And look at Jesus and marvel at Him. Let the eyes of faith, even now, just look out at that day that's coming and marvel at Him. He is coming in glory. He will sit on a throne. He will separate the nations. He will sentence the wicked to their eternal Punishment, and you, Christian, will be with your Jesus face to glorious face forever in the joy that's full and never ending. Oh, let us set our hope in this Advent season on that glory that is to come. Let's pray. Father, you give us such a powerful 
powerful word through your son in the gospels. And we thank you that it just lays out so clearly what is out in front of us and what's coming and what we have to look forward to. Lord, don't let us become... Don't let us loiter on our trip to inherit this glory that is to come. To sit idle and to not busy ourselves with being about the work you've called us to do. To love and serve one another as unto you. To cling to the gospel. To know that we should go and share this gospel. That we should lay down our lives to serve one another. In this Advent season... Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the glory that is to come, on the Jesus who will be revealed, and make our hope firm and strong. Strengthen our hope in the Son of Man who will come. Let us look forward to that throne, that day of judgment. Let us look forward to when He will come and judge for us and not against us. And may we look with longing, with prayerful longing and joyful anticipation to seeing Jesus one day and being with him forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.